You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Hello, everyone. Let's begin this podcast with your emails and comments. We start with our friend, Lionel, who I believe is writing us from Portugal. He says, hi, so one odd thing stood out from yesterday's episode, uh, since dating goodies seems to be coming only next week, which is the week we just watched, having cut the no longer serpent now spoils mounds, (laughs) why don't they pick an organic sample from the bottom of it and from the soil beneath it to date them? This is even more amazing since they had previously dated that piece of charcoal, or perhaps they did. And the dating from a couple of weeks ago actually happened after the events shown this week. Well, Lionel, you're bringing up um, you know a subject we covered last week for sure, and I think I made some of my <laughs> points on that one. But uh, let's continue because it is an amazing turn of events in my mind. Um, this decision to end the work on this quote unquote serpent mound is one of the most puzzling decisions that I've ever seen on the show. I don't understand it. Uh, in the weeks, uh, just to kind of repeat myself a little bit here, but just to sort of wrap up for this week's show in this week's immediate in the, in the weeks immediately leading up to this decision, they dated this charcoal that Lionel mentions from, I believe I have this right, 1320 to 1440. And in the war room, we had all these looks of amazement and excitement and all this excited talk about the Knights Templar and pumping their fists and all that kind of stuff. It was just a couple of weeks ago. And then a week after that, we heard that there was a spike found there. And it was the same, maybe even made by the very same person as a spike found in the money pit. So you have charcoal dating. and with, Remember, charcoal had a nail in it. So this is there's, there's reason to get excited about it. Um, it's ju- not just evidence of a forest fire. I mean, it could be, but with the nail in it makes you think that you can tie it to some sort of human activity. And nails are certainly not uh, something ubiquitous to America in the, uh, <laughs> to the Americas in the 14th century. But you have the Knights Templar time frame, you have one spike being found that matches chemically almost exactly with the other one. And then we decide that it's not a serpent mound. It's not an ancient serpent mound. So let's just forget about it and move on to something else. So the weird thing about this is that according to the timeline of the show, despite the evidence of what we saw, despite the charcoal with the nail dating to the 1320s, despite the other spike, rosehead spike being found in it that seems to match perfectly with a spike found, uh, you know, over 100 feet deep in the money pit. If this wasn't an ancient burial spot, then it is of no interest. Now, honestly, how could that really be the case? We clearly are being left in the dark here about something. Something just isn't right. We're not getting all the information that led Rick to get to that conclusion because it makes no sense. Lionel, it's always a pleasure to hear from you, as always. Let's turn now to Eric, who's on Facebook. He wrote, best line was from Sandy Campbell, the treasure in the, is the journey. I'm inclined to believe that as well. Not just the history that we are seeing and learning or even the full story of what happened on Oak Island. It's all the memories, anticipation, frustration, surprises, sadness, and entertainment 
we've received. Eric, I'm really glad you wrote this. I always feel like, especially when we go through a couple of these episodes here that I pick stuff apart, I feel like I'm just complaining too much. And there's so many people on social media, um, if you follow these Oak Island groups, that's all they do. They just complain about the show. They complain about all, they watch it every week, but they complain about it constantly. And your email here really gives me the chance to just sort of reiterate just how much I really do love this show. Um, Listen, another thing to bear in mind, we all knew going into this that this season was going to be a struggle, a struggle to get the same amount of content, the same amount of episodes. They had a shortened season. We all knew (laughs) that this was going to be a struggle for them, maybe at season's end. We'll decide collectively as a group that it should have maybe been a shorter season, that they've extended too much. They added some things that weren't really all that important. Um, but I got to say this. I'm glad they've at least going about giving it a try and giving us a full season. You know, for those of us sitting at home most of the days now and waiting for this craziness to end, um, it's good to have as many episodes as we possibly can. And I'm all for it. Um, thank you, Eric. It's great to hear from you. Thank you for that little bit of positivity. Let's go now to uh, our good friend, Daryl. Let's see, where do we have Daryl, who uh, this week he has a new theory for us. What I'm theorizing, he writes, is the flood tunnels weren't designed to flood the money pit as a deterrent. They were intended as a ventilation system for the diggers who were digging the horizontal tunnel from inside the money pit above the high water mark. As the tide comes in, the old air is expelled up and out of the money pit. As the tide goes out, fresh air is drawn in through the top of the money pit. What say you... Am I out there in left field? I, I don't think you're in left field, Daryl. I, I just think that you're putting the cart before the horse maybe a little bit, right? I mean, I love these theories. I love when people think about this stuff, and I do it all the time. But what I always say when I start talking about something, especially like this, is I kind of set myself back a little bit and say, you know, do we really know <laughs> what the flood tunnels are? Can we really opine about them? Have we seen enough of them? You know, an idea of talking about this and what you're saying here, the the possibility of what you're saying here makes all the sense in the world, but let's get a good look at these tunnels first, right? Let's prove their existence. Let's see what they look like, and then we can theorize what they're possibly used for. Right now, we're just going on a lot of hearsay and a lot of guessing, honestly. Uh, it's like the Xena map, right? Let's prove its authenticity before we actually spend the time following a theory based on it. Thanks, as always, Daryl. Keep theorizing. Keep sending them in. I love thinking about this. You had me thinking about that for for quite a while when I got it. Uh, You always get me thinking here. Let's go now to Jesse, who writes, I am disappointed that what I thought was a gold nugget turned out to be a brass knob. Editing should get a raise for that. Now, this is a kind of a longer email, so let me stop here and talk about it bit bit by bit. Um, My God, you're right, Jesse. Uh, And let me tell you, I think this was maybe a big mistake for the producers. Um, I know they want to generate excitement. That's what trailers are all about. Every year we get something that looks big in a trailer and it doesn't deliver on the bigness of that. But in my mind, in the way I'm thinking about this now, especially after that episode, um, I think they might have went too far with this thing. They knew what they were making it out to look like. They knew what it was. They knew they were showing us and making a big deal off what they were making us think was a giant hunk of gold and turned out to just be a doorknob. I mean, it's one thing to sort of (laughs) equate something with another. It's one thing to exaggerate a little bit. 
But boy, oh boy, this really felt like it went a little far. I see more complaining about this one item than just about anything else in years. It was really a bit insulting. Uh, I think last year's mysterious thing coming out of a giant hole that we never saw, um, and then this kind of really sit as two examples of uh, maybe going a bit too far with trying to gin up the excitement. Anyway, he continues. Second, since you didn't read emails last week and it's been two episodes since the metal object was found by Gary in the swamp, I was wa- I'm was wondering if they tested it and found out it was TIG welding slab uh, and someone discarded it into the swamp recently and I was right about it not being an old piece of jewelry. We know they do not, um, they do not talk about items that don't help the timeline or our current items. Um, now he's referring to this weird layered piece of metal that Gary showed. I think I put a uh, on Facebook on January eighth. Actually, I have a photo of it there. Uh, Gary said it looks like it could be a piece of jewelry, um, and then Jesse <laughs> came up with the opinion that it might have been slag. Uh, it seems to be that's exactly what it was. Um, and like I always say to you guys, if you don't hear anything more about it, you know why. It just as he said, uh, it doesn't help the timeline. It doesn't fit. It's not worth it, but it still makes for good television to show something mysterious. That way we as viewers come away thinking, oh, wow, they really did find another crazy thing, even though it really isn't all that crazy in the long run. He, anyway, he continues. This week's episode, I don't know how to buy into wood at 181 feet, and they say uh, and they say no, the deepest searcher tunnels are at 171 feet. Hell, 10 feet of new dirt is nothing in the last some some odd years they have been digging. They could be at the original 171 foot and not know it. As many times as dirt has been dug out and pushed back in, who knows what the actual depth is compared to the original money pit. Seems sketchy to me. You're right, Jess. He's he's referring to this wood. Not in this episode we saw, but the week before. A piece of wood came out below a searcher depth. You know, can't be this shaft. You know, we've heard this before. Um, The show is always sparse with details on this. These were really small pieces of wood. Not really evidence of anything more than, yeah, you're right, maybe wood's just being pushed up and down through all this work that's being done here. I, I didn't make a whole lot out of it. I, I, we don't hear about it this week. I mean, maybe we can keep an eye on it as we move on and see if it's referred to again, but I think you're seeing the page turned on this, really. Um, thank you, Jesse. Great email again. Let's go now to Brian, who writes, I have a solid theory. What that log was used for, they pulled from the ground on the eastern edge of the swamp that had two spikes protruding from it. You remember, this was not from this past week again, from the week before. In 1931, an electric pump was placed at the money pit to pump out the water from the shaft. In order to power it, they ran a power line to Oak Island for the first time. M.R. Chapel talked about it in the book he was writing. Please see attached image from his writings, which I'll put on the Facebook page for you guys. Uh, as seen in the attached photo from 1930s, the poles ran along the eastern edge of the swamp. What they dug up part of one of those old poles, and the spikes were there for the linesman to climb up the pole. And that's... Brian? <laughs> as they say, uh, you, my friend, are a steely-eyed missile man. That is a great great catch a great spot go back and look at those images again of that pole when he when they pull it out of the ground brian i think you got it it certainly seems like an incredibly logical um conclusion to me and if they don't date that wood then i think we can say with pretty good certainty that you're correct here in this one and if you noticed 
even though we made such a big deal out of it at the end of that episode, it was not mentioned at all this week. In my mind, until I hear different, I think you win, man. You win. Uh, I'll post the images Brian sent, like I said, on his fa- on my Facebook page uh, for the Digging Oak Island. Just go to Facebook, search Digging Oak Island. Um, so that's two wood finds in the swamp with zero follow-up, right? This one, plus the ones that you remember that kind of started all this in the very corner of the, uh, up by the road, the very eastern corner that Gary found, um, you know, they dug it up. They, I, I forget why he found it all, but there were pieces laid on top of each other. And now we have this, um, you know, maybe this all kind of wraps together at the end and we get kind of a better picture of all this as we move on through the season. So I'm not saying that, <laughs> that I'm certain these two finds are, you know, don't fit in the timeline, but I'm certainly leaning that way. Anyway, great email, great spot. Good job. Uh, Mark, our friend wrote in to offer his assistance with a little problem I was having last week. Craig Tester was holding it, referring to some sort of chart with little worms on it that I couldn't understand. Well, as usual, the listeners are smarter than the host, and Mark, uh, he understands. He writes, listening to your podcast and hearing your cries for help. When they drill a hole, it does not go straight down. Depending on the density of the materials they drill through, the drill bit wavers a bit, taking the path of least resistance. When they finish drilling, the lower they lower a sensor down the tube to get an as-drilled path, showing the drift of the hole as it was drilled. Steve Guptill plots this data on his map for analysis. Last episode, you can hear Craig Tester discuss this, that they missed the target due to this drift. If you pause the video, you can kind of see the scale on these plots. I think, top of my head, it's a one-by-one-meter grid or three-feet-by-three-feet. Three that gives you a sense of how it wobbles. Cheers, Mark. Again, Mark, thank you so much. So It's so nice to have listeners who are smarter than I am. Uh, it really makes this easier for me to figure this stuff out. If I have a question, I just ask you guys and I get the answer. Uh, that makes sense because you do see sort of a wobble and, you know, they're all, none of them are, you know, circular. They're, they're just little variant degrees. Um, Mark also sent me this great link um, to look at the Canadian government's LIDAR data from Oak Island, which is a great little tool, and it's public for anyone to see. Um, you can get a look on there and see really what this is all about, uh, you know, so what the LiDAR data can tell you, and really kind of play around with it, see the different uh, layers of vegetation and all that kind of stuff. It's fascinating. Anyway, I think that does it for this week's questions. Don't forget, if you would like to send in your questions or comments to be discussed in a future episode, you can send them to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right, so here we go. It's time to discuss Season 8, Episode 12 of The Curse of Oak Island called Digging in Their Heels. I think that's what it was called. Anyway, let's start over at the Money Pit where Terry Matheson and Charles Barkhouse are drilling a hole exactly 16.7 feet to the northwest of hole OC1 from last year. <laughs> I, I, I'll get to why I say 16.7 like that in a minute. Anyway. Uh, they seem to be building towards something here at the Money Pit. Don't you get that feeling? Um, they seem to be getting us, you know, bringing us along towards something. Uh, they find what they call something like a piece of shaft wall, I think was the word they used. Uh, somewhere between, I think, 90 and 110 feet. At least that is the area they're working in. I'm not sure exactly where they found this. Charles runs a small handheld metal detector over it, um, over these samples, these long samples in these plastic bags. And he gets a hit at the end 
of the sample, which is all the way to his left of the table, right? They can't figure out what it is. They can't find what they're looking for, so they call in Gary Drayton. Makes sense. This is Gary's patch of grass, so let's let him do the work here. Gary comes down. He doesn't seem to find this hit either, but instead finds another hit at the total opposite end of the same sample. It's kind of a weird little moment there, right? Anyway, so he says what he finds here is a part of an old iron square head nail. And Rick Legina looks at it. A couple others do. They all seem to agree. Um, they show a close-up of Gary's hand, right? And my wife and I paused it, and we took a long look at it. I don't see it. I don't see what they're looking at here. I don't know. That doesn't mean anything that I don't see it. But I, I really didn't catch what we were looking at. If you guys saw it, you want to take a screenshot of it for me, um, let me know where this square head nail is. Anyway, now a little bit later in the show, uh, they're digging this new hole called C8.5. And down at 40 feet, the 40 feet level, relatively high, um, they find more wood and, and a good amount of it. Now, Charles Barkhouse seems very certain that this must be part of something called the Tupper Shaft. Now, the show explained what the Tupper Shaft is, but let me just give you a little bit more in, uh, uh, insight into what it ac actually is. Adams Archibald Tupper was the fantastic name of the foreman for the Truro Company. Now, the Truro Company was the second real attempt at the treasure. You had the first one, which came right after the finding, like in the early 1800s, and then the Truro Company was decades later. It was the last time that it actually included... John Smith and Anthony Vaughn, two of the three discoverers of the money pit, original discoverers of the money pit. The third, Daniel McGinnis, had passed away a few years before. So you would think, and we're pretty sure, that these two guys knew exactly where the money pit was and where to be digging. This Tupper Shaft was the first of many to come <laughs> attempts to try and tunnel, to try to dig a shaft next to the money pit and then tunnel sideways in an attempt to avoid the flooding. So what they're trying to do here is go below the pit, below the level where they think the money pit treasure is, then go sideways to be underneath the money pit and then drill up and pull out whatever's there. Thought being the booby trap is above the vault or above the treasure and that the water isn't actually inside where the treasure is because you wouldn't want to ruin the treasure, right? Anyway, as, as every other attempt that will come, as they approach the target, they tunnel down and across. As they get closer and closer to the target, water fills the, the shaft, and it filled this Tupper shaft, and the men digging barely escaped with their life. So that's what the Tupper shaft is, and Charles is pretty sure that this is what it is. If they can confirm that, then you have some records to tell you where this is in relation to the money pit. They're old records. How accurate are they? We don't know, but it's another sort of piece of data to decide where the money pit might be helps them to confirm where the big dig might go right that's the whole thing here right so if they can get things like confirm the existence of the tupper shaft well then they know if they spread 10 feet in each direction then they have to come across the money pit at some point right so what we need to do is confirm that that's what this is it has to be more than just charles's opinion from looking at a piece of very old dated wood we have to actually get science involved to date this wood and then maybe we have something here Okay, so it's time to head over to the swamp. It's actually where the episode itself began. Now, as we see here in this, it's very dry, and a lot of digging is being done. Um, you know, they've done a great job draining it all out. 
Uh, before we get started with all this, we hear Rick make another <laughs> very nicely worded complaint about the archaeologists. He says something about, you know, they went very slow and all this kind of stuff. A little bit nicer than when Marty called them those dreaded archaeologists. Um, but anyway, he does make sort of a complaining little <laughs> line about them. I just wanted to say that because I wanted to point out here, remember, archaeologists are involved here because that's what the government said. That's what the government wants. They said so. That's why they're here. So we're digging around in here, and Gary picks out a piece of glass out of the spoils. He's As they're doing some work, he's metal detecting, and he pulls out a very thick piece of green or yellowish glass. He seems very sure it's from an old glass onion bottle. He calls it a Dutch onion bottle. It's all certainly the same thing. And that seems to be, from my knowledge of a glass onion bottle, exactly what it is. Um, he calls it something like old pirate glass. Okay, believe me, pirates were not the only people to use glass onion bottles. They were very popular in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, it's not a hugely significant find. You can find pieces of this all over the place. Let me tell you a little anecdote. There's a great little bar on the west side of Manhattan, low, sort of lower west side of Manhattan. They call it the Ear. The reason why they call it the Ear is because the loop part of bar in the <laughs> neon sign the loop part blew out, makes it look like E-A-R, so everybody calls it the ear. The ear is built actually on, I think, maybe a door down. There's a little sign on the door. At least there used to be. I haven't been in the ear in a few years. But there, there is a little little painting, a little little marking on, on the side of the wall of the building that says this is where the old water line was for the Hudson River in 17-whatever. So... It was right there. And during the building of this, this has been a bar for ages, during the building of the Holland Tunnel, I believe, the workers would come back to this bar. And as they would come back, they'd bring back whatever artifacts that they would find while digging under the Hudson River. And these little glass onion bottles adorn the ear above the bar. At least they used to. May not still be the case, but it did at the time. Uh, and you'll see a hun you'll see just dozens and dozens of them. They're, and they literally were everywhere. It does, like I said, this doesn't seem to me to be a hugely significant find. It does, however, <laughs> begin this curious theme of trying to make everything finding on the show here, at least in this show, seem like it comes from a pirate ship or a naval ship. Again, a glass onion bottle was used by a lot more than just sea captains and pirates. Again, hold on to that. You'll hear what I mean in just a second. Now, later in the episode, Rick and Billy Gerhardt are digging further up from this new paved rock area to try and find where it might lead. Now, during all this, uh, Gary's metal detecting in the area, and he finds some strange kind of tool of some kind. Um, it looks like it might be, like, again, some sort of tool, maybe part of a lever. I, it's hard really to say what it is. Maybe a lock piece or something. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it until the show does, right? We just see it in his hand and nothing else from there. So my guess is this is going to end up passing into obscurity. The real info in all this, in this scene here, is that they confirm from the work that they're doing, they're digging little cross trenches to try to find more evidence of this paved area. It seems to be that they're, that this paved area is actually curving up the east side to the west, which would lead it away from the money pit. Interesting little uh, idea here. Let's see where all this goes. During all this, Craig Tester makes a great little observation, very interesting little thing where he says something about how incredible, how big a project 
this must all have been to build this. And he's absolutely correct. That's why we need to be sure of exactly what this is, because this is not no small thing, right? This is this was a big deal. This was building a big project. Now, we need to know how big it really is and where it all leads. This here, this paved structure is obviously the project that will be dominating the rest of this season. Okay, the last thing we're going to talk about is not actually a destination. Well, I guess it's a destination, the sorting table, so to speak. Uh, we'll begin this conversation with a video meeting they have in the war room with chemist Dr. Krista Brousseau, who we've talked about. Uh, she has more information for the team about a rosehead spike they found earlier in the season within the spoils of the whole OC1. Now, the spike looks encrusted with something, and that something is essentially, according to her, a man-made concrete. The spike also, from its chemical makeup, apparently appears to be of British origin. Finding concrete <laughs> then brings up the chapel vault. And we haven't gotten to the chapels yet, the chapel vault and that uh, company yet in our timeline, which will continue in the off-season, but let's just touch on it a bit. In 1897... A company called the Oak Island Treasure Company, which was led by William Chapel and Frederick Blair, two names you hear a lot of, were digging drill holes in the Money Pit area, exploratory holes. At 122 feet, they came across a layer of wood. Four feet later, they came across what they thought was sort of like an iron plate. Now, then the thing drops down another 30 feet, I think going through like sand and that sort of stuff, until they get to 154 feet, where they hit what they first thought might have been sandstone, but later determined it to be a layer of concrete seven inches thick. How they determined this? Scientifically, I don't know. This is what the records say. The drill then passed through this seven-inch thick concrete into five inches of solid oak, followed by four inches of what they called soft metal. Okay. Now, the reason why they know this is because they're bringing up drill bits, right? And they're seeing what's at the end of the bit. After that, they went through what they determined, what the people cranking the drill determined was small bits of metal. Now, as far as I know, I could be wrong. <laughs> uh, this was not determined to be a precious metal of any kind. We always see the drill come out in the graphic looking like gold. I'm not so sure. Somebody correct me on this, but I don't think anybody said it was gold. Anyway, uh, but more importantly, more famously at least, on the end of that drill bit was this famous piece of parchment with the letters VI or NI or whatever, IV, whatever. You've seen it a million times. So you could see why finding concrete is enticing to the Oak Island searchers. The last group of people to hit something that they thought was the real target was the chapel vault, and people have been trying to get back there. As I'm sure I don't need to tell you, and I don't want to give away too much, Chapel and Blair never actually got down to exhume that vault from its grave here. So we're discussing this spike, okay? And the spike has concrete on it, so now we're going to lead us to believing that OC1 is, in fact, near this money pit or in fear, near the chapel vault and we're getting where we need it to be. This is also the same spike that matched with one in the serpent mound. Oddly, we don't hear about that again. Anyway, 
At the beginning of the episode, we're at the spoils pile of hole 8B, okay, which is located 10 feet to the southwest of OC1. Now, I said the 16.7 feet before. I'm impressed in this show that they gave us such exact locations. That's unusual for the show, but they did it this time. They showed us exactly where this is all going. This is where I'm, this is why I'm thinking that we're building to something in the money pit because we're getting a little more information. We're getting a little more findings, some fun things. It's kind of building up to something. Alex finds within this a piece of leather, good size hunk of leather here. And they both, him and I think he's there with Peter and other people working in the sorting table, both think it's from possibly a boot heel. Now, later in the show, Charles and Doug take this to Halifax to show it to a guy named Joel Landry, who we've seen in the past. He's a bookbinding expert. Now, he can look at something and tell you if it's part of bookbindery. I'm not sure what his level of expertise is in older leather outside of books. Um, he might be the 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 leading expert in all of Nova Scotia. I don't know, but I think we've complained about this before about taking items to other experts that you know may or may not be an expert in this field. And it makes me wonder as I'm thinking this that perhaps this is due to the COVID restrictions, right? Maybe they just can't take these items to all the places that they really want to. So they are, um, you know, using people who who have an expertise when maybe in the past they would have taken it to another research facility or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, Landry's a pretty reasonable guy and he seems very smart at what he does. And he points out that the stitching holes on both of these pieces are very, very close together. It's an old piece of leather and the stitching is close. So this means it wasn't made by somebody at home. This is an expensive high-end item made for somebody wealthy, some person with money. And again, here, everyone starts talking about it possibly being from a sea captain. But you have to ask yourself, why is a sea captain the only possible person who could have bought and worn these boots. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't understand why we're bringing this all to this. Again, could we be building to something? Let's hang on. Despite all of that, we get some incredible information about this leather, and I find this one flooring. Craig has carbon dated the leather, the leather and it dates to a range of 1492 to 1662, and that blew me away. What is that doing in a hole underground in the money pit? I don't remember what depth we got this at, but if it's more than 50 feet, <laughs> if it's more than 10 feet, really, let's be honest, what is it doing there? Um, it's a very large range of dates for sure, and I know that makes people question it, but even if it is the newest in that, right, it means that it couldn't have been put there by somebody searching and digging, at least not in my mind. I just can't see somebody doing that work in 1847 or wherever it might be with a 200-year-old pair of boots. That just doesn't make any sense. So this one really blows me away. Marty makes a great observation in this whole scene. He speaks for almost all of us when he says, quote, it just, it's just getting to be too many dates, end quote. It sure is. The popular refrain is that things found on Oak Island often raise more questions than answers. And that's certainly true of this fine. But this one is amazing. I spent a lot of time complaining. This is a great, great fine. This, to me, kind of harkens back to the human bones. Um, found a couple of season, seasons back. Why are they down there? What is this all about? Someone was down there. 
There's no other way it would be there in my mind. Correct me if I'm wrong. And we don't know who this was, and we don't know why it's there. And while we're asking these questions, why is it a sea captain? (laughs) I could go back to that. Why does it have to be a sea captain? Do they know something already that they just haven't shown us yet in the show? Maybe we'll find out soon. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. I rambled a lot today, and I am very, very sorry for that. As I mentioned to you last time, I'm not writing scripts for these show reviews because I want to get them out in timely fashion. And with craziness, with the COVID and the kid being home from school and stuff, that's harder and harder to do. So um, sorry again if I rambled too much for you. Um, Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode. Don't forget, subscribe to the show. Uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. If you do enjoy the show, um, if you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great. That actually helps us get us up sort of the Apple um, you know, rankings there. Uh, and I appreciate everyone who has done that already. It has really helped, and uh, it, the kind words are wonderful. I really do appreciate it. Also, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you could do so via emails. The best way, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Let me just warn you, keep in mind, if you send me an email or even a message over uh, Facebook or Twitter, uh, I might just answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want it read, um, just leave me (laughs) an indication of that. Uh, If you don't want it read aloud to your listening audience and answer it here, just make a note of that for me and I'll do my best to respond to you via whatever platform you sent it to me. And don't forget, follow us Facebook, Twitter, search at Diggin' Oak Island. Give us a like, follow there. Very appreciated. Um, great way to interact with other members of the show, listeners of the show, and a great way to follow the podcast. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.